Have you ever uh, gotten behind the scenes of something that uh, you really liked, something that you really admired, some situation that you had always looked up to, and gotten to see it from a different perspective, from maybe how it's made or how it's produced or whatever, uh, and it changes your perspective on that thing, um, maybe makes it less impressive, uh, or maybe has the opposite uh, effect that you experienced something that was already great, uh, and then when, we, when you saw it behind the scenes, when you saw it up close or from a different perspective, it was even better. I, I have a few examples of the first, which I won't dwell on, but uh, a couple of examples of the latter. When we lived in Northeast Pennsylvania years ago, uh, we got to go see the, the David Letterman show in person. I got to go a couple of times, uh, and it was better than when it when. I watched it on TV. It was better and funnier, and all of a sudden you're there and the theater's not very big. You perceive on TV that you're gonna be, you know, a mile away from the stage and everything that's happening, and even halfway back, all of a sudden, uh, here's David Letterman, here's Alicia Keys, here's Dana Carvey. All of these things are happening, and it's even better than what I expected. But when I was thinking of examples of this, uh, the one that stood out to me more than that this week uh, has to do with the Ryman Auditorium. Is anybody who's been to the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville? This is one of the really famous venues in Nashville. And for a long time, I've known about it. I knew it existed. And after Britt, my youngest brother, and Jen, who some of you guys know, moved from here to Nashville uh, about 10 years, almost 10 years ago, uh, we started going up to see them. And we kind of developed this tradition that every other year we would go to this concert called Behold the Lamb of God uh, at the Ryman. It tours around, but they also do a show or two at the Ryman every year. And so we went once, and then the next year we took the Joneses back with us, and it kind of became a tradition for us to go every other year. And we took the Steels a couple of years ago. There we are with some other uh, riffraff that we picked up who were looking for friends while we were there. Um, and we broke our tradition this last year because everybody was busy and spending our money other ways, but we hope to bring that back to life soon. But if you don't know about the Ryman Auditorium, if you don't know anything about the history of it, in 1885, a boat captain named Thomas Ryman went to a tent revival that an evangelist named Sam Jones was preaching, and it changed his life, and he decided he was a wealthy boat captain, and he decided, I'm going to use my money to build a church for this preacher. So he began the process of building this building, the Ryman Auditorium, which was initially called Union Gospel, Tab Gospel Tabernacle. It was a church. It was a place where people showed up every week to, uh, to go to church. And uh, that, over the decades, changed. In the 1920s, it became kind of the cultural center of Nashville. It transitioned from a church to a concert venue. Um, and so everybody from John Philip Sousa to Harry Houdini to Roy Rogers... Charlie Chaplin, Bob Hope, Teddy Roosevelt's been on the stage at the Ryman. It became the place to go in the South for events and for famous people to do their thing. In 1943, the Grand Ole Opry started here at the Ryman. And so it became even more so a focus of the world of country music. Here's a picture of Elvis and Johnny Cash backstage at the Ryman. And uh, Hank Williams played here, Minnie Pearl, Patsy Cline, of course, everybody associated with the Grand Ole Opry played at the Ryman. 
The Opry changed venues in the 70s, and this great historic place, the Ryman Auditorium, actually sat empty for years and started to fall apart. And somebody decided to, to, they had to begin a foundation to fund and decide, let's try to bring this thing back to life. And so they did, and they revitalized it, and now it is, uh, it's not the biggest venue in Nashville. Uh, it's, not, it's not the fanciest venue in Nashville, but it is the venue in Nashville. Everybody plays there, Paul Simon, Wilco, B.B. King, Coldplay, Taylor Swift, The National, Mumford, Harry Styles, all of these people have been here. Jason Isbell sold out six shows there uh, a couple of years back. Everyone plays at the Ryman. So it had already become my favorite venue uh, a few years ago. And in uh, November of 2014, Britt, my brother who lives and works up there, invited me to come up on a little trip because he was producing a show that was happening at the Ryman. And he said, if you want to come see the show and, and kind of be a part of it all, you can do that. So I flew up and then drove back here with them to Thanksgiving. So suddenly this place that was just sort of monumental in my mind and has all of this rich history, I'm standing backstage during uh, sound check. That's Ricky Skaggs. Uh, on stage there with his wife. Sarah Watkins is in the background who was in Nickel Creek, if you're familiar with them. And this is the place where bluegrass was born. I mean, Ricky Skaggs is kind of the standard bearer for bluegrass in a lot of ways now, but this is the place. In fact, there he is in his first appearance at the Ryman Auditorium. Um, he was a child phenom on the mandolin and played there as a kid. Uh, this is where Bluegrass was born. This is where Johnny Cash met June Carter at the Ryman. Um, and all of a sudden, I'm backstage and I'm seeing it all from a different perspective. And I, I will say that backstage of the Ryman is not that impressive. It's very small. It's very cramped. It's an old venue that was built as a church. It doesn't have big palatial green rooms or anything like that. But it was awesome. It was better than I could have imagined to get to walk on the stage and imagine who's walked across the stage and all the things that have happened there and be backstage and see it from that perspective, and when I did, my awe of the place only grew. It just got bigger. And I tell you that story to say, this is what I think we get access to in Revelation 5, though obviously what's at stake in Revelation 5 and in this story is much more important than the Ryman or anything like that, and it's happening on a much grander scale. But what's happening in Revelation 5, this gorgeous patch of passage that Asher just read and that we just sang from the veil between our day-to-day -day reality and God's kingdom reality is lifted. And we get to see these actual events of Easter weekend, the same story that we tell, the same gospel that we preach. We get to see that, those events unfolding and echoing in the heavens. That's what's happening in Revelation chapter 5. It's a realm that's just as real as our, real, as our reality. And what's happening here is happening there. And what happens there in turn affects what's happening here at that time in history and affects now our daily lives. So I want to talk a little bit about this passage. Uh, before I do, it's, I think, fair. We don't preach from Revelation a ton around here. Um, and so I think it's fair. We're kind of jumping into the middle of a vision, which is a strange thing to do anyway. It's definitely an interesting way to take on an Easter sermon. Uh, so I want to give us just 
60 seconds of context here of what's happening in Revelation. What is Revelation? We all sort of have probably preconceived notions of it. But these are the first words in John's revelation. He writes, this is the revelation of Jesus the anointed, the liberating king, an account of visions and a heavenly journey. God granted this to him so he would show his followers the realities that are already breaking into the world and soon will be fulfilled. Through his heavenly messenger, he revealed to his servant John signs and insight into these mysteries. John, in turn, gave witness to the word of God and to the glorious truth revealed about Jesus, the anointed one, the chosen ruler, by carefully describing everything he saw. Blessings come to those who read and proclaim these words aloud. Blessings come to those who listen closely and put the prophetic words recorded here into practice. The finale is approaching. So this is meant, this book of Revelation is meant to give us a heaven-centric account of who Jesus is, of what he's done, of what he's doing, and what he will do. And so far, if just to give you a quick summary of the first four chapters before we talk about chapter five, the revelation has told us who Jesus is. The revelation has given us what a lot of you are probably most familiar with from the book, seven letters to seven churches, God's message to the churches. And then in chapter four, John is shown God's actual eternal realm. He's given visually what's happening in God's space in the heavens. He sees God seated on a throne. A lot of these are kind of our traditional images that we get when we think about who is God? Where is he? What is he doing? What is heaven like? God is seated on a throne. There are 24 smaller thrones, John says, for the 24 elders. And those 24 elders represent God's people, the 12 tribes from the Old Testament of Israel. And then you have the 12, the 12 disciples in the New Testament. And so this is a old covenant, new covenant representation of God's people around the throne of God, seated on thrones of their own. There are seven torches, which are the are spirits of God. We can't, I can't explain all of Revelation to you tonight um, or ever. There is the glassy sea around, uh, beyond the throne, beyond this scene. And John says there are four living creatures. One looks like a lion, one looks like an ox, one looks like a human, and one looks like an eagle actually in flight at all times. So this is the scene that John has given us. In chapter 4... When he describes all of this, the four and 24, uh, the four creatures and the 24 elders are worshiping constantly, he says. And for some reason, in Christian lore, we have latched on to that moment in Revelation and made it the permanent state of heaven. And we've decided that's what heaven's like all the time. Everyone just singing and worshiping, nothing else goes on. We are all about down before the throne for eternity, worshiping God. That's the kind of myth that we've perpetuated about heaven, uh, what God, what's happening there now, what's going to happen when we get there. Everyone's constantly chanting or singing or worshiping God on his throne, and that's part of what's happening. It's definitely what's happening in chapter 4. But there's a lot more going on, which we see in chapter 5. Here's what chapter 5 says. This is a different, trans Ooh, that was fast. different translation than what Astrid read a little bit ago. John says, then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one seated upon the throne, a scroll written both on the inside and on the outside. It had been sealed with seven seals. Then a mighty heavenly messenger proclaimed with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? 
No creature of creation in all heaven, on all the earth, or even under the earth could open the scroll or look into its mysteries. Then I began to mourn and weep bitterly because no creature of creation was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look into its mysteries. So, at least at this point, it's not just singing and worshiping happening. It's not a situation where the story is even over, where what's here, which is what we often envision, is no story really in heaven. The plot has ended, and we're all just going to bow and worship. But John describes a scene where the story is ongoing and unfolding. It's not a place that has nothing to do with us, that is, is separated from the reality of the nations of the world. Uh, with all of us living in our time and place. Here in the throne room of God, there's an unfolding story. There's a need even, John says, and something that has to be done to fulfill that need. And as this scene unfolds that we have in Revelation 5, the world, as we just heard in that song, is broken, is cast with dark shadows, is groaning for redemption. That's That's why the scroll is needed and that's why John reacts the way he does when no one can open it. The evil that has taken root within our world has to be dealt with. And here we have the scroll that can deal with it. It's the scroll that contains the words of life that can heal the world. N.T. Wright describes this scroll this way. He says it contains God's secret plan to undo and overthrow the world-destroying projects that have already gained so much ground and to plant and nurture instead the world rescuing project which will get creation itself back on track and in the right direction. These are the words of life. This will solve it all. But this scroll is serious business. It can only be unsealed, we're told, by the one who can handle it. Who can deal with that problem? Who can handle all of the world's evil and sin and brokenness and death? Who can carry the weight of all of that and heal us, deliver those words of healing? And even in the holiest place, John says, at least for a moment, there's not only a question of who can open it, but no one to be found. And John is in the moment because he sees that and he says he weeps bitterly because there's no one who can break the seals so that the words of life can come and heal what's broken in the world. He knows our condition, and he knows it's hopeless without this mysterious redemption of God, which is contained in this scroll. So, the story that we all know of the gospel is that God acts to rescue us, to heal the world by sending Jesus, who is God, but who's also fully human, and he's subject to all the same struggles and temptations as the rest of us, but he is able, as a man, to endure and embody this divine, perfect will of God in a way that none of us come close to. And that's a very earth-centric perspective on this same scene that we're about to see here in the rest of Revelation 5. Here are those events, as we know them in the gospel, unfolding in the heavens in Revelation 5. Then one of the elders consoled me, John says. Stop weeping. Look there. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has conquered and is able to break its seven seals and open the scroll. I looked 
And between the throne and the four living creatures and the 24 elders stood a lamb who appeared to have been slaughtered. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. The eyes are the, the seven spirits of God sent out over the earth. File that. That's one of the ones to file away. We'll deal with that some other time. The lamb came and took the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne. So here's what happens. And I think this is really significant. John is told, he hears a voice. He's told, here's the one who can carry the weight. It's a roaring lion who can bear on his back and win the fight against all of evil. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. These words have deep significance in the history of God's people. That he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. That he came from David's line. Some translations say the lion has triumphed. The lion has won the victory. It's warrior language. It's alpha language. It's king of the jungle language, right? This is what John has told. This one, the conquering lion, has come and can unseal the scrolls. That's what he hears. He hears the announcement of a lion. But as he hears, what's he told to do? So to look. So he turns and he looks, and what does he see? A lion? He sees a lamb who appears to have been slaughtered. And with this introduction of a roaring lion still sort of ringing in his ears, he lays eyes on a lamb that still bears the visual marks of a sacrificial death. This is the lion? It doesn't look like a lion. With the introduction, with that description, he has, we have to assume, a certain expectation. And what he lays eyes on when he hears the instruction to look and he obeys is something else. This story <laughs> is the behind the scenes this is the gospel that we know from another perspective this is jesus born of a virgin raised as a boy tempted by satan betrayed by friends not raising either his human power or his divine power in his own defense tortured and murdered by religious leaders and by the empire and then victorious over death this is that same story told from the perspective of the heavenly realm and this image that we get at this point in the story is the first of a few things I want us to be clear about today. And it is this. Jesus is the lion and the lamb who conquers through sacrificial love. See, I think for John and for all of us, there is an immediate desire for reconciliation of these two radically different creatures. Very different beings, very different images. And what I've given you here is probably the most serene uh, image of a lion because we're told this is a lion who conquers. I could give you some real uh, Discovery Channel footage of a lion conquering, right? I didn't do that. But that's what the picture is. That's what he's told is happening. And when he turns, what he sees is a lamb who still bears the mark the marks of having been sacrificed. The lion is the very picture of power and force and royalty. And the lamb 
is innocent and vulnerable and gentle, the one who is sacrificed instead of the one who conquers. But here they are together. It's not that this elder misled John or misspoke when he said a lion and it was actually the lamb. Sorry, we brought out the wrong animal. That's not what happened. The elder is right. The lion of Judah, who is the very root of God's people, has indeed conquered, but his victory is accomplished through the sacrifice of the lamb. This is not how the story would go naturally. But this is what has happened. The two are now and forever connected. And you can't just have the lion and his power. The lion's power only comes through the sacrifice of the lamb. And you can't just have the lamb who is sweet and gentle and innocent. The lamb's sacrifice has the force in the world and the conquering power of the lion. The power of sin and darkness and death are undone, not by a political or military victory, not by economic flourishing, but by the complete life laid down sacrifice of the lamb. And when that lamb is slain, the victory over sin and darkness and death is not partial or temporary or meek. It is all-consuming and once and for all. It's a lion's victory, and it's been settled right here in the throne room of God. So, sometimes I think we see Jesus in the gospel portrayed as proof that God is meek and docile and just kind of fine with everyone and everything just the way it is. And that's problematic already because, well, there's definitely a space and we spend a lot of time and energy trying to figure out uh, this real conversation about where and how God determines what's right and what's wrong in this world, what he's okay with, what he's not okay with. We all intuitively know that he's not just docile and indifferent to what's happening, to everything being okay in the world. When we look around at the brokenness and the evil in the world, none of us want a tame, docile God who can't or who won't come into the wildness of our world and make it clear once and for all that he's king of the wild. And he's gonna put an end to the darkness and to the suffering and to everything that runs counter to God's loving, created intention. He's not docile. He's not indifferent. He is the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. But we also commonly see and maybe embrace sometimes Jesus in the gospel portrayed as proof because he's the lion of Judah that the goal is to conquer and to gain power and to gain wealth and to gain influence, to make enemies and name them and defeat them and mock them on Facebook and whenever we can. To ride the back of this lion of Judah who's surely, if he's a conquering lion on a mission to acquire for us, for his people, political power and cultural dominance and all of those things. We think victory for Jesus is going to be achieved by our achievements, through our power, our influence, our version of winning. But Jesus' victory, once and for always, is the victory of a slain lamb. There is no other way to winning with Jesus. In this case, I think what's happened um, for us culturally, because that 
that mentality is prevalent in the, the Christian culture of our country. I think what's happened is we've heard this elder who says, uh, look, it's the lion who's conquered. And we said, great, let's go. And started charging ahead, but he's still talking. <laughs> the voice from heaven is still saying, look, we've just taken what we've heard and truncated the rest of the instruction. And the voice from heaven is still saying, look at him. We're so consumed with our, our fantasies or our need for comfort, our, our desire for the lion to do something for us that we aren't turning our eyes to see that the lion because when, when we see him, we discover he's a lamb who's been slain. And not just slain because of them and for us, but slain because of us and for them. You cannot divide Jesus from himself. He is the lion who overcomes all the sin and darkness in the world, and he is the lamb, slaughtered, but, and here's the Easter turn, slaughtered but standing. The lamb who laid down his life for all of us, but who is standing. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Let's continue in this scene in Revelation 5. It says, The lamb came and took the scroll from the right hand of the one seated upon the throne, and when he took it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell prostrate before the lamb. They worshiped him, and each one held a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's holy people. It's easy for us to come across a passage like this and see it all as just metaphor, or maybe even because I stand up and say so, or because you've done some study on your own, decide, okay, no, this is like actually tethered to the events of Easter weekend, to the crucifixion, to the death of the lamb, to the resurrection of the lamb. This is kind of the heaven uh, account of what's going on on in earth on those things. Maybe it's connected to that event 2,000 years ago, but it doesn't really have that much to do with us except, you know, as history. But this part of the passage and what's after it don't really give us that option to disconnect ourselves from what's happening in this scene. Here in the throne room, at the very moment that the lamb is taking the scroll so he can open it, the elders who represent us, who represent God's people, are holding bowls full of the prayers we pray and the songs we sing. That stuff is present at the very moment that the lion, the lamb, is taking the scroll. We are active participants in God's unfolding story, every part of it. What we do in prayer, what we do in worship though that stuff may not always make us feel the way that we want to feel or create the outcomes in the here and now that we desire, all of this is echoing in the heavens. It's present and it's relevant as the Lamb of God opens the scroll that will set humanity free. So take heart. You may not always get the circumstances that you want right now, but there is a grand story written in a scroll that came from the hand of God opened by Jesus himself that will lead to the healing of the nations, that will lead to the binding up of your broken heart. 
and that will lead to the undoing of even the greatest of all of our earthly losses. The death of death itself is on its way because of this moment. This is possible that death itself is undone, we're told, because the lamb that was slain is now standing, ready to open the scroll. He forever bears the marks of his sacrifice. And that's not insignificant. Those marks mark our lives now too as people of the lamb, people of the cross. But he is standing because death was not the end for him. And because death was not the end for him, death is not the end for us. Paul describes this part of the story, the standing sacrificed lamb, as it played out on earth and as it will play out in the days to come on earth and in the heavens, he describes it this way. But the anointed one was raised from death's slumber and is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in death. For since death entered this world by a man, it took another man to make the resurrection of the dead our new reality. Look at it this way. Through Adam, all of us die, but through the anointed one, all of us can live again. But this is how it will happen. The anointed's wake awakening is the first fruits. It will be followed by the resurrection of all those who belong to him at his coming. And then the end will come. After he has conquered his enemies and shut down every rule and authority and vying for power, he will hand over the kingdom to God, the father of all that is. And he must reign as king until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last hostile power to be destroyed is death itself. My final word today is this. The story's end is already written and it is life all the way down. The death and the resurrection of Jesus were real events in a real moment in time, in our realm, in our history. And as they played out here, the heavens themselves became aware of what was changing in heaven and in earth. The lamb who was slain is the lion of Judah, roaring back to life and unsealing, unsealing the story of God's great redemption. And Paul says, that's not all. Paul says that as that, that lion roars back to life, that's not the end of the story. That's actually the beginning of this story. He says it's the first fruits, the resurrection of Jesus. It will be followed by real life forever for us as God reigns as king over his redeemed creation. This is sure, the scriptures tell us. In fact, we see through John's revelation how not just the heavenly realms, but all of creation is going to ultimately respond to this. I want to close with that today, the rest of what John writes, um, and have the band come back up. We're going to sing just a little bit more before we go. But I want to close with that, and I just want to invite you to kind of let these words wash over you as you consider the role of Easter the role of Jesus who gave his life and who really died and who because he is the lamb who is worthy and because he became the lion who conquers. I want us to consider the way the realities of his life and his death and his resurrection alter the nature and the purpose of our lives.
of your life. I want you to consider how you can reorient your every moment around this truth. We exist to join what began in the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus. Events which are going to carry us toward and into this finale that John describes. Then they sang a new song, the four living creatures and 24 elders, saying, you are worthy to receive the scroll, to break its seals because you were slain. With your blood you redeemed for God people from every tribe and language, people from every race and nation. You have made them a kingdom. You have appointed them priests to serve our God, and they will rule upon the earth. When I looked again, I heard the voices of heavenly messengers numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. They surrounded the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And they said this, worthy is the lamb who was slain, worthy is the lamb to receive authority and wealth and wisdom and greatness and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and beneath the earth and in the sea and all things in them echoing the messengers. All of creation says, to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and power throughout the ages. And the four living creatures kept on repeating, Amen, Amen. And the elders, who are the people of God, fell down and worshiped him who lives forever. Father, would you draw our attention wherever it is spent, wherever it was directed coming into the room tonight, would you draw our attention to this scene, which is not just escapism, it's not just a fantasy of what might be when all of this stuff that doesn't matter is over. It is the reality that the lamb who was slain, the lion of Judah, conquers and gives purpose to our life right here and right now. And that purpose is to join this story that points to Jesus and says, look, he's opened the scroll. He's given us the words of deliverance and redemption and life that everything in us is longing for. Would you take these events of Easter, of Jesus giving his life away, of him dying, really dying, lifeless, with the people who lived in that space where a lot of us often live, just waiting and wondering Is there real life here? Or is this the end? Is this it? And then the real resurrection of his body, the real victory of life over death. Would you take those events and would you plant them in our hearts so that they would grow into life that is really life and make us a people who not only celebrate that life, speak of it, who exude it in all our being. We're here for you today, Jesus, because of who you are, because of what you've done. Let us see you and be changed.